Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation Podcast Network, hosted by Blake Murphy 7 and Johnny Touchdown, all about your Arizona Cardinals. Hello and welcome in, Arizona Cardinals fans. This is the Revenge of the Birds podcast. We're back with a uh, two-parter this week. We're breaking down the Arizona Cardinals Finale to the regular season, uh, they end up finishing with a loss to the St. Louis Rams. Uh, it feels like it's been forever ago that the Cardinals played the Rams, but we've been away for quite a while. We'll be talking in this episode also about um, the uh, entire 2019 season as a whole. We'll be looking back at some of the progress of Kyler Murray, of Cliff Kingsbury, and Vance Joseph in their first year, evaluating the moves that Steve Keim has made. And then later this week, you can look for a off-season preview from us, kind of taking the current off-season as it is. But uh, before we get started, at least for that one, um, I want to make sure that we get introductions out of the way. Uh, my name is Blake Murphy. I'm the co-host here of the Revenge of the Bird Gang podcast. Uh, Revenge of the Birds, excuse me, I should say, podcast. And joined as always by my co-host, the illustrious and venerable John Venerable at Johnny Touchdown. How are you doing tonight, John? Hey, Blake. It's great to be back. I'm doing well uh, after a, a little bit of a hiatus over the uh, holiday. I hope everybody had a enjoyable experience uh with friends and family and we are happy to be back hopefully on a uh semi-consistent basis giving you cards content throughout the duration of the off season um but yeah it's it's difficult now watching playoff football blake because you you see so many and i know we'll get into the kind of year in review but you see so many similarities with a lot of these teams and where they were at maybe a year or two ago in comparison to where the cardinals are right now uh, ending the season of at five, ten, and one, and I think it all it all starts with Kyler Murray and and so many of these mobile quarterbacks are, are taking the playoffs by storm, and one can only hope that we're sitting here next year and uh, having similar conversations about um, wild card and divisional success. Yeah, I think it's interesting to point out when you mention like the five, ten, and one record. You look at the top two seeds right now. We're recording this on a Sunday night. We just finished up with a kind of crazy comeback victory by the Kansas City Chiefs earlier today, um, going up against the Houston Texans. And uh, also we had the uh, Green Bay Packers making their way to the NFC Championship game, uh, beating the uh, kind of a little bit of a uh, last uh, last hurrah for Pete Carroll liking to punt on fourth down to give the ball back to Aaron Rodgers versus keeping it with Russell Wilson to pick up 10 yards. But uh, you do you, Pete. Uh, it's, it's just interesting to see. Um, 
Uh, the Cardinals had an interesting, uh, very interesting, I guess you could say, piece of all that story, considering the fact that the Seahawks don't even end up in that position against Green Bay without losing to the Niners the previous week and then losing to the Arizona Cardinals the week before. They lost four of their last six games. But ultimately, John, I think that you could say that the Cardinals, in a lot of ways, were similar to that 2013 year where they played spoiler a little bit to the Seahawks. And Hopefully that's encouraging because you look at the Niners had the number two pick last year. The Packers, I believe, also had a five to six win record as well. They were able to turn it around and are now the top two seeds in the NFC. Yeah, it just shows you that the Cardinals were in a position, I think, to they're, they're not on the same level of, of the majority of these teams. I think that goes without saying, especially in the NFC. We saw them against the top tier teams, the New Orleans, um, you know, the two divisional teams, and they went one and three against San Fran and Seattle, but they were right there in three of those four games. They should have easily uh, split with the San Francisco 49ers, had no business losing that that game in San Francisco the way they dominated it, the way they did. Um, but again, it, you know, I, I've got people clamoring on Twitter that, well, moral victories aren't a real thing. If, if they were, you know, Trending upward, they would have finished with more wins. And then comparing it, Blake, to, to said 2013 Cardinals with Bruce Arians, that team had way more talent. They were underachieving. That's why Michael Bidwell made the, the transition. And then the, the whole time that offseason, Bruce Arians and Steve Kine put together a team filled with veterans. Yeah, they had a, a couple nice draft picks and, and Tyron Matthew and a couple others. But it was a veteran-led team with Carson Palmer. This team with the Arizona Cardinals, I think, had – the fourth most snaps from the rookie class. Oh, um, and then, yeah. And they were led by a, a, you know, a 22, 23 year old quarterback and, and to come out and say, well, they, they didn't win enough in, in 23 or in 2019. I think my projection before the season was five wins. Yours was six wins. If I recall, I mean, we're, we're right there outside of that tie. Um, we hit the nail on the head, but I think that, you know, there are a lot of takeaways that we can we can come away with in 2019. Some surprises, some certainly some disappointments. But the biggest box that they had to check was did they make the right decision on Kyler Murray? Um, and of course, that's a, a resounding yes after what we've seen from him. But at the same time, um, there there are a lot of variables that led to their eventual eventual record this year. Um, and you talk about in comparison to a Seattle or in comparison to a San Francisco or a New Orleans, all of which they, they suffered defeats to this year, you know, Seattle, yes, they were probably a little bit of a fraud team, but they still had the likes of Bobby Wagner. They've got, you know, really nice receivers on the perimeter. San Francisco has probably the best roster in the NFL, which is crazy to think about, but they went through a multitude of off season rebuilds. Um, you know, New Orleans had a, a loaded roster. They were buyers at the deadline. The Cardinals very much were cutting veteran players mid to late season, getting rid of veteran players to try to play young players to see what they had moving forward. If that doesn't scream rebuilding, you know, I don't know what does. And yet they came out, they pounded Seattle toward the end of the season. They pounded the Browns. If they have a healthy Kyler Murray, they might win that ender or season finale against the LA Rams. So I just it, it just speaks to the momentum they have but the ways they still have to go in regard to turning over this roster into even a mid-tier roster. I mean, they don't have the talent of some of these fringe playoff teams, certainly not like a Dallas or a Chicago Bears. I'm just thinking right now in the NFC, I mean, Tampa Bay, 
think finished with seven wins. They've got much more talent offensively. So Kyler Murray can make up for a lot, but we certainly don't want to be too dependent on him. When you look at the likes of a San Francisco who asked Jimmy Garoppolo to do just enough not to turn the the game, you know, on its backside and, and lose. Um, they're able to win in a lot of different ways. It would be great for the Cardinals, Blake, to get to that point. But unfortunately, I, I don't think it's going to be able to be done in one offseason. But the hope is that it begins um, and continues from last offseason moving into to 2020. Yeah, I think you look at some of the past Cardinals teams. The 2013 Cardinals team, uh, they finished strong, finished with 10-6. and six. Added quite a bit of talent over the offseason. I believe that team started out with a 9-1 and record and then had multiple injury issues with Carson Palmer missing a few games. They even had Drew Stanton at one point was out and they had to have Logan Thomas come in, I believe. And then Stanton, of course, finished out the season along with Ryan Lindley having to start the playoff game against the Carolina Panthers. Uh, those were obviously, as you said, John, different veteran teams that still managed to find some ways to win. Um, and we're hoping the Cardinals can take that next step. One of the steps that they hopefully did take was against the Los Angeles Rams, a team which they had averaged uh, about 33 points were scored on them to only seven scored by the Cardinals. A different result this time. It was 31, but to 24 Arizona. So the game began overall with a Rams field goal. yet a few punts, and then a curious play call that kind of got the Cardinals back into it with Sean McVay calling for a punt fake punt on fourth and seven from their own 17 yard line was tackled at least a yard short the cardinals end up scoring you then end up seeing for the most part some struggles on offense overall from the cardinals the rams end up having a uh, pretty much kind of play of the field position game they score on a 50 yard uh, drive for the most part just kind of obviously dinking and dunking for the most part running the ball with todd Gurley. they get up on the cardinals 10 to 7 you then start seeing something uncharacteristic of Kyler Murray. You have a couple of fumbles that ended up taking over that resulted in the Rams taking a lead. Uh, the first fumble ultimately didn't seem like it was too much his fault. It was put on him from that, but it looked like it was a fumble with Murray tossing the ball to Kenyon Drake, who was not expecting it. Uh, recovered by Taylor Rapp. The Rams score on that next play. The very next series, you have another fumble. This one actually was committed by Kyler Murray, recovered by Corey Littleton. And the Rams ultimately only keep the Cardinals in the game due to missing a, I believe it was, 47-yard field goal wide right. Cardinals end up keeping it close to get to the end of the half, 17-10. Um, it's still a game, John. The backbreaker, obviously, that came over in that next series was um, a bad pass to Larry Fitzgerald was intercepted, and the Rams just essentially um, were able to take over. Cardinals actually had tied this game. What were some of your thoughts as we kind of get through with from the beginning of the Cardinals game to kind of about halftime? Because this was a very different story from past Cardinals uh, games. And I even told, I think I was with my folks watching the game and said, guys, like the Cardinals are not getting blown out at the half. That's at least one step forward for this team compared to what it's been in the past against the Sean McVay team. Yeah. And I, I also want to pump the brakes it was nice to see a competitive half or competitive, you know, four quarters, but the Rams literally had nothing to play for and they look like they played hard. Um, but again, I thought the Cardinals would have a chance to really pull away and win this game. Um, I wasn't sure who was going to play for the Rams um, because of the fact that they were out of the postseason race, um, but they made a conservative effort to play competitively and kudos to them. I would have liked to have seen them not, 
play specifically their left tackle to see Chandler Jones have a chance at that sack record. And boy, did they make it a priority to stop him. But I, I still think with it, with a Kyler Murray at hundred percent and I get it, nobody's hundred percent at week 17. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think they have a chance to, to win that game for the most part, the first half, the, the two turnover, the turnovers were this, I think the story of the game. I, I loved the, <clears throat> Uh, ability to convert after the the fake punt attempt that was null and void by the Cardinal special team. Um, Kyler Murray comes down and hits a seam pass um, to what I think could be an emerging weapon in 2020, that being Dan Arnold, who really had uh, a nice finish to the season. I, I, you talk about somebody who came out of nowhere, was on the Saints practice squad, was plucked, and I think they were pretty, I don't want to say upset, but they were pretty taken back by the fact that you know, this was a guy that they had counted on to be a part of maybe future teams. And for, you know, for that reason, the Cardinals thought, OK, if he's good enough to be with Sean McVeigh or excuse me, Sean Payton and, and to have a future in their, you know, what they do so well uh, in the Big Easy, maybe the Cardinals um, can, you know, turn something out of nothing here. You know, Charles Clay had not been producing for this team at all. He had gotten injured. Um, and so I think most of us just assume that, you know, this was maybe a, a camp or excuse me, a late season body, but, you know, only three games with the club, Arnold surpassed hundred receiving yards. He had a 76 yard game against the Rams uh, in the season finale. And then of course that, that 23 yard touchdown pass in the, in the process. So, you know, he, he and Max Williams certainly seem like a, a formidable duo moving into 2020. Uh, sure. They could add a position, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. I, I just wanted to point out how well I thought he played down the stretch. The Cardinal offensive line, I also thought, played pretty well. They only gave up one sack. Um, and I thought, really, they controlled the game. I thought the Cardinals ran effectively when mm-hmm. they wanted to. Kenyon Drake averaged, I think, over five yards per carry. But, again, with the threat of Murray not being able to run and he was a little bit gimpy, you know, they really kind of sold out and, and did not let him take off, and, and for good reason. And so – the turnovers were the, were the story of the game. And then partially, the, you know, Cardinal defense played better. Um, Patrick Peterson played well, again, which is a, a really good sign for this team being competitive next year. But um, it was a, a combination of the, the defense just couldn't hold up toward the end of the game. Jared Goff still had her huge day. I think he had over mm-hmm. uh, 250, 300 yards passing with three touchdowns. I mean, he's just eating them alive. And then the Cardinal offense turning it over. It says five times, really, the the end play. I don't count that as a true turnover. They had the two fumbles, which were just killer. And then the the Murray interception. So, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's it's a frustrating loss because it shows you that, man, the Cardinals are fourth in the, the division. And I still think, and it could change in, in a single offseason, certainly with the Rams' limited cap flexibility, yep. they're still clearly the fourth best team in the division. McVeigh is a Super Bowl contending head coach. Um, yes, they're making substantial changes to their staff that I don't think are in the best interest of them, but you know, the Niners in the NFC title game, the, the, the Seattle Seahawks have only missed the postseason one time since they drafted Russell Wilson. I mean, the Cardinals are in maybe the, the hardest division we've seen in a decade. And that's unfortunate. They're not in the NFC East. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to leapfrog a clearly limited Rams team, in terms of resources. And I thought it was a small, but it was a positive step in this game. Um, but again, talent was on display. I mean, the, the Rams are loaded in their front seven with Aaron Donald. They have Corey Littleton, who the Cardinals should target in free agency. 
Uh, they've got Jalen Ramsey in the back end. They've got any of their receivers would be an upgrade over what the Cardinals have right now. Um, so it was, it's, you know, at the end of the day, you say what you want about Jared Goff. And I, I'm a kind of a Jared Goff, you know, apologist, because I think that when he is given ample time, just in the same realm as Matt Ryan, he can pick you apart. And um, the Cardinals have to hope that their roster begins to continue to, I should say, uh, deteriorate. Because right now, as much as I like to think that they're going to be competitive with them next year, I mean, the Rams are always going to have, in my opinion, a coaching advantage with McVay. And the Cardinals need to overtake them personnel-wise um, for for them to have a chance to leapfrog them in, in 2020. And that's a tall task, Blake. Yeah, I think your hope is that Cliff can move forward to be able to kind of equalize a bit of that. There's still been some baffling decisions we have seen from McVay earlier this year. But overall, um, like, like you said, John, the Cardinals are in a spot where they're having to make a lot of headway against one of the toughest divisions in the NFL. And as a result, it's going to be... Um, not easy sledding unless one or two of those teams are able to take a step back. If all three of those teams are contending for the playoffs, it's going to be very hard for the Cardinals to take a step forward there. Uh, Just kind of wrapping up some of what we saw with the game. What's crazy is the Cardinals had uh, a tie game at 17 to 17 uh, after a, I believe it was a big big pass to Dan Arnold over the middle. And then you end up having a, uh, just kind of a nice drive of the head downfield. There was a deep pass that, and this is unfortunate because Dan Arnold, there was a stat that was given out during the game, I believe, um, where if he had not been interfered with in one of Murray's deep passes, that was an illegal contact penalty that they had called on the Cardinals. You probably would have had Dan Arnold be the first tight end in almost 30 years or so to have 100 receiving yards for the Arizona Cardinals. Which That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, but... It also shows how the Cardinals have struggled at the position, and a lot of it is just because they've never had a solid, dominant offensive line, a solid, dominant quarterback to get the ball to the tight end. And just the way in the personnel has been used overall, it's been difficult. So the Cardinals tied the game on a Demir Bird slant pass. Bird also had a, uh, I believe, a big long pass, at least, that kind of woke up some of the team in the game. But he's turned into at least a suitable weapon I think it's pretty well justified starting him over Kenya uh, I believe Keyshawn Johnson Uh, what's unfortunate is the Rams the very next drive um, they just go and march right down the field overall they only take some I believe it's three plays to get into the uh, Cardinals territory Byron Murphy gets burned for a 24 yard pass to Cooper Cup it was a gorgeous wheel route got just enough separation for that one um, sometimes you have to be able to admire the receiver. Sometimes you have to put that onto the corner. Uh, in this case, the Cardinals were unfortunate as they had a neutral zone infraction on third and fourth, Arizona 14. Byron Murphy jumps off sides for that one. Rams take over at first and goal. What's difficult about that is it's a rookie mistake that we've seen from Byron. He's been up and down over all through the season. And the game eventually was not over per se but the Rams intercepted Kyler Murray's next pass it was a slight overthrow of Larry Fitzgerald going for the deep ball Taylor Rapp with his second pick of the day Rams march back down the field and you see a touchdown pass to Robert Woods Um, the Cardinals essentially gave up two touchdown passes to tight ends in that play I'll give them credit they did come back at least on that next drive to kind of make it a game at 24 points Um, with Murray taking a hit um, they had a roughing the passer call on Clay Matthews. It's 15 yards. Murray comes off of the field, at least for that, and they're kind of checking out the arm and the elbow. 
Um, you still see them score with Brett Hundley and Kenyon Drake up the middle. He had a phenomenal finish to his year overall. And then the end of the game, Cardinals, it's still a one-play, one-possession game. The Rams are forced to punt it back to the Cardinals. Cardinals end up having about, I would say, a minute left or so. Pretty much no timeouts that are left there. And they have kind of a weird little flip play after a middle pass is completed overall to, uh, I believe it was, uh, oh, Farrow Cooper, at least 24 yards. They're at midfield. They spike the ball two seconds left. Instead of a Hail Mary, you see a short pass to Demir Bird, kind of fumbles, flips it back. That's the final fumble of the game. The Rams recover and win. We find out post-game two very interesting tidbits of information. Um, one was that Cliff Kingsbury admitted that Kyler still probably had a little bit going on with both his arm and also his mobility. And if you're going to attempt a Hail Mary pass, you're going to have to get him out of the pocket, rolling out, using some of that mobility to buy some time. You're also going to have to talk about the fact that his elbow, maybe it was a little bit dinged up. He came back in and completed the pass just fine. Uh, it's possible that there was just enough hurt that it was unwise to you know attempt to Hail Mary and get his quarterback killed. Cliff just said, all right, we're going to have this play that we'll put in here. We'll roll with the punches, see what we can get out of it. Um, and the Cardinals end up going down to 5-10-1 on the season. So we find out post-game also that Kyler Murray... Uh, when we found out, I know, John, before the game began, we were both impressed with Murray's willingness to tough it out for an injury that we both had, you know, assumed that he wasn't going to be playing in the game. He says post-game he kind of had to be pushed a, a little bit by the coaching staff and amended some of those comments later to say, yeah, he always wants to play and wanted to make sure he played his game. Do you think that this was a mistake by the Cardinals to play Murray? Is it concerning at all to you that Kyler maybe not like wasn't ready up and raring to go for that? Or what were some of your thoughts on that as well as kind of the hits and the injuries that he took in the game, despite the fact that he started all 16 games? Yeah, I think that was important to him. I think he, he wanted to be the only other rookie quarterback in uh, NFL history, along with Cam Newton, to throw for uh, 3,500 yards and, and rush for 500. I think that meant something to him, but I think it meant more, like you mentioned, to play all 16 games. And the fact that he knows, and he said this, everybody's banged up in week 17. It, it doesn't matter that he's the quarterback. And and he had he told them, you know, I I don't I'm I'm uneasy about playing. I don't think I can go. Then they wouldn't have played him. I think that he was on the fence. And then Kingsbury said, "It's your decision." And he felt he woke up. Sunday morning and was feeling good. There was still some uncertainty Saturday night if he would play. And then Schefter broke the news that he planned on playing, which was a surprise to me. I, I didn't think he would play, um, but he wanted to go out there. He wanted to showcase to his teammates that he could battle. Not that there was anything left to prove, but I think he wanted to go into the off season potentially on a, on a three game winning streak, but to have positive momentum in the sense that, you know, I, I accomplished a 16 game season. Everybody said, I'm an undersized player. I can't hang in the NFL. And um, it killed him to not play in that second half against Seattle. You saw how physically ill he became when they had to pull him. Um, he's a team guy all the way. He's addicted to winning. He's the ultimate competitor. He's something that the Cardinals haven't had really in the history of their franchise to have this kind of youth at the quarterback position, franchise caliber quarterback that they've drafted that is just addicted to winning. And that's all due respect to the, you know, the Neil Lomaxes of the world, but Kyler, Kyler is just a different kind of breed. You know, first round pick in two different sports, undefeated in high school, two losses as a starter at Oklahoma, you know, one that coming to the national semifinal. So he, he wants to set a, a, an expectation with his team members that um, he's a gamer, he's a battler. And, and 
he he gave them the best chance. He he at seventy five whatever seventy five percent gave them the best chance to win, and that's all due respect to Brett Hundley. But um, they probably would not have been nearly as competitive with Brett. And I know Brett came in and had a nice touchdown, and that's exactly what he needed to do. Um, but Kyler finished the year strong, in my opinion. I thought outside, you know, they were driving. Um, that second instance of the fumble with Shipley, which either no, neither fumble was his fault. They were moving the ball at will. I mean, they did really whatever they wanted yeah. to do offensively. Um, and so I, I think they would have come away with points uh, with the AQ fumble. They should have come away with a touchdown um, at the end of the first half. It just there's so many instances that we can look back, not only in this game, but throughout the duration of this season and say, wow, they were really close to breaking the door open and scoring 30 plus points or 40 plus points. How many times could we say that not only last year, but in years prior the, this off season, and we're not going to get into off season now, but it's going to only take a couple tweaks offensively for this team. And one of those tweaks is just Kyler Murray going through his maturation process in year two. It's only going to take a couple tweaks for this, for this offense to go from what was uh, football outsiders. I think had them at 13th overall. That was generally mm-hmm. where, where most people had them, just outside the top 10. They're going to sneeze and be in the top 10 next year. I mean, they're going to be an offensive juggernaut, an offensive fantasy football darling, and they're so close right now. Um, and you saw, again, those limitations in the season finale. Receivers, time and time again, that could not separate, Blake. Receivers that, throughout the duration of this season— had to be interchanged in the starting lineup. The only constant really was Larry Fitzgerald. Christian Kirk, who I thought would have a breakout season, was inconsistent, um, got hurt, and he did say you know, his injuries hampered him throughout the duration of the the rest of the season, and that's fine. But the team, probably unfairly, was counting on him to be their number one. When in reality, I, I would say probably the most consistent receiver the Cardinals had down the stretch was Demir Bird. I mean, mm-hmm. who would have thought that? It, a lot of people, in, including myself, thought of him as a camp body, may or may not make the team special teams or as a gunner or whatever. He had 74 yards and a touchdown. He looked great over the course of the final couple games of the season. Why, why was he so effective? Because he's one of maybe two, three players in the receiving core, that being Isabella, Bird, and probably Kirk, Kirk, when he's healthy, that can separate. That can yeah. separate, that can come off a press man and get open for Kyler Murray. The rest of the, the unit is built up of possession receivers, and they have their role, but you know they don't have a Cooper Cup in this offense. They don't have a Brandon Cooks or a Robert Woods who can separate, that can average big yards per mm-hmm. carry. And I think we saw that again on, the, on display. And this offense, just to me, Blake, and it, it showed up in this game. They had 24 points. They really should have had 30-plus. It feels neutered without a, you know, a couple in, infusions of speed and youth and, um, you know, grit or whatever you want to say. Um, and I think it starts at receiver. I don't want to put the entire offensive struggles this year on receiver, but man, when you look at well, the offensive line played better than people thought. And look, the running backs did really well. We had two running backs that averaged over five yards a carry, and your quarterback ran the ball effectively. Well, what's what's left? The tight ends played well this year. Max Williams was a top five PFF player this year. What's the remaining factor? Kingsbury called plays for the most part outside of a slow start in the red zone. He was great calling plays. Yeah, The The red zone finish down the stretch was excellent for the Cardinals overall. What was the root cause, Blake? For people who want to clamor about anything but a receiver at number eight, 
tell me what was what was the problem. It was the receiving core. And I love Larry Fitzgerald. I don't love Larry Fitzgerald at you know eight figures next year. I just don't. So that they that to me bared its ugly head again against a Rams back seven that had been given up big time performances. And Kyler threw for three twenty five. He had two touchdowns, but you know, both of his interceptions were targeting Larry. I don't, I don't know what that means, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, you are what you are and the Cardinals are going to be limited offensively. They will not unlock their potential potential with Murray until really they add significant upgrades at receiver. Yeah. We'll talk a bit. I'm at least with the receiver position in the off season. Uh, we'll probably be able to talk a whole lot more about it, at least in um, some of our next episode or even finishing up with our, roster breakdown but I, I want to do my top three kind of takeaways we wrap up the Rams game uh, the first takeaway that I had overall was the play of Dan Arnold to be able to get the catches with uh, up to 74 yards having that touchdown just not really necessarily needing to be Travis Kelsey but being able to have a tight end who's a receiving threat who can both block and then be a mismatch down the field especially just being able to even catch the ball off of seam routes. We saw a very similar play to the one that David Johnson ran as a receiver down the field against the Lions. That was kind of what sparked the Cardinals' offense back in that game. You saw a similar play to Arnold after that leaping touchdown grab last week. If you can just find some stability between Arnold and Williams, maybe add in a third body there, you don't necessarily need to have one of the great tight ends to be able to make an impact because I think you've got a good enough quarterback that you'll be able to use them in the meantime to get the ball to them. I think that you're right, John. It's about building the team. The second takeaway that I had was the Cardinals, despite if you told me that the Cardinals would turn the ball over five times, would lose to the Rams by only seven points, I would assume that the defense had one of their greatest games ever. Instead, the defense did give up up to 31 points, but it could have been far, far worse considering the fact that there were five turnovers, four that really counted. They were able to hold the Rams, I believe, to a field goal and even a punt after two of those turnovers. And the offense, for that matter, still scored 24 points despite turning over the ball so many times. So to me, John, that was my second takeaway was that the defense did take a step forward. I think a lot of that did revolve around the play of Patrick Peterson not being able to allow big plays in the run game as well. And the final takeaway that I had overall was um, just kind of the interesting thing that will follow with Kyler because um, even though that did hit did come on a, an illegal play for the most part to hit Murray, um, just the fact that we saw a different offense when he wasn't able to be himself. There are questions about whether he'd play or not. Um, I think that this was a great move for him to be able to say, hey, I'm playing hurt. Everyone's playing hurt. His teammates talked post-game how impressed that they were that he did gut it out through the injury despite the fact that he was so not himself. He had probably six, seven open yards in some plays to make a guy miss, and he just boom, sat down on the turf because he's like, I'm, I'm not going to want to risk further injury, and I'm not going to um, try to scramble and take an extra big hit. I think that's going to be one of the questions that people will have is – uh, how much of the the plays, the interceptions, how much of the development can he take a step forward to be able to play when he's not 100% but things are on the line? You look at Carson Palmer gutting it out despite having the finger injury. Um, even you look at some of the other quarterbacks who've had gutsy performances. Um, I think what a lot of fans are ultimately are afraid of is you know they don't want to have a situation like how Bears fans remember Jay Cutler sitting on the sidelines in a playoff game 
Um, we know now, obviously, at least between that, we just saw that happen with Carson Wentz. I think a lot of fans would prefer almost the Josh McCown types who played through a you know, torn leg and an injury to make sure that they could give their team every chance to win. That'll be a question I think that people will have about Kyler just because he's shown to be so self-protective. I don't think I have that as much versus just recognizing that, you know, he's a quarterback who wants to make sure that he isn't missing extensive time. But that was my third takeaway overall was just that it doesn't really matter whether or not it's true. It is, I think, going to be something that follows Kyler just because we did see Brett Hundley finish the Seahawks game and then come in for a couple of snaps, at least overall, in the Rams game. It wasn't that you saw Murray play 100% of the snaps, but you did see him play 100% of the games and finish the season. All right, uh, let's go ahead and move on. I think we'll do our three top three takeaways will be kind of more of our game wrap-up segment that we'll do as we go throughout the, uh, you know, maybe even the draft or some of the other areas. But I wanted to focus now, John, on what we saw overall from the first year of Kyla Murray, the first year of Cliff Kingsbury, and then the first year for the Cardinals under this defense. Um, I think the obvious thing to look at as far as we're starting was with Cliff Kingsbury, who a lot of people questioned if he was an NFL head coach, a lot of people questioned if he was just going to be a train wreck waiting to happen. A Chip Kelly, we're skipping over the 10 win seasons for Chip Kelly going right to the bottom. Uh, we didn't see that. We saw the interesting progression from in a training camp where the Cardinals essentially were not really running their real offense in the preseason. They ran kind of a vanilla offense, practice with a vanilla offense in training camp, busted out a whole lot of 10 personnel and four wide, and it backfired very quickly. The Cardinals were scrambling for about three quarters or so. They put it together in the fourth. You think of how Cliff came into that game, apologized after the game to the end of the season, where you see the Cardinals, despite the fact that they're injured and hurt on the road with a quarterback who um, is not working, a, a wide receiver who you know, a core that's not great. Uh, and a team that's mostly built off of the run game and tight ends, you got to see a lot of progression where the Cardinals are able to put up uh, the same type of 24 points. So what were some of your thoughts on Cliff year one? Because I think there's questions people will have. There may be even some limitations that we see in some regards. But overall, you'd have to at least consider that from where the Cardinals were on offense a year ago, just simply adding essentially two more talented players, and then when they did get a running back who could run hard like Kenyon Drake, the offense essentially took off. What were your thoughts on Kingsbury's first season, at least, and what do you think he proved this year that makes you either excited or trepidatious for 2020? Yeah, I think he proved that he can coach at this level. How high of a level, I think that remains to be seen, but I do think that you upgrade personnel on this team and you continue to give him a supporting cast that, you know, fits what he likes to do and they're going to score points. Um, and I think that situationally we had a lot of question marks. Um, but what I, what I do like and what I've liked from the start is he had been a head coach before. We see a lot of these first year head coaches and that being, you know, head coaches, not only in the NFL, but period, Freddie kitchens, we saw what a disaster that was. I think there's something to be said. If you've never been a head coach at any level, it's it's difficult to win the room. It's difficult to be able to come in and convince a group of, of grown men that you can lead them into battle on Sunday and have success throughout the duration of a grueling 17-game season. I think Kingsbury proved that pretty early on. You mentioned the historic 
turnaround offensively, and it was historic. The Cardinals were one of the worst offenses of the last four decades. They're one of, in, in 2018. They were one of the worst NFL offenses of all time. And for him to come in, and I've said this, I've said this for two months, and you can attest to this, Blake, that they he did this with the same cast of, of characters. Granted, he had some health in the offensive line that Wilkes didn't have last year. He did it with the same team outside of Kyler Murray offensively, and he almost got them into the top 10 offensively. And that's mm-hmm. incredible. But you mentioned it, Blake. I think the most impressive thing was his ability to manufacture a run game that was not there in previous seasons. It wasn't there with Bruce Arians. Um, David Johnson's most successful season was in 2016. They were an okay running team that year. He only had like 1,200 yards rushing, uh, but it was mm-hmm. the touchdowns. It was the receiving yards. This Cardinal team was the most effective running the football that I can remember in my, in my time watching this franchise operate. Um, and they've got oodles of potential moving forward. I mean, you talk about being able to manufacture a run game with an interior offensive line that most people thought would be amongst the league worst to be able to take you know, a, a, a slew of backs, including a, a fourth round pick in Chase Edmonds. Listen, say what you want about Chase Edmonds. I think a lot of people like him, but are concerned about whether or not he could carry the load over the course of a 16 game season. And I'm right there with you, but you double his statistics uh, in terms of his yards, or excuse me, his carries. And they're right there with, with, with Kenyon Drake. And for him to be able to come in five yards to carry Drake, five yards to carry Kyler Murray, five yards to carry and and for them, like you mentioned, it to f- kind of flip their their offensive philosophy on the fly based on okay, he's going through some growing pains. He's allowed to to have that happen. This we're not talking about the Cardinals bringing in somebody like Mike McCoy with expectations and he's got a Super Bowl ring. And there was even some of that with Bruce Arians. Kingsbury was allowed to come in and take his time, and he did that. But we saw the offensive turnaround pretty quickly. I mean, they they were very competitive against a Baltimore team that has shut a lot of people down. They were in the red zone a bunch of times. Throughout the duration of the season, moving from 20 to 20 was never a problem. We never felt like the Cardinals just could not get anything going. It was really just once they got into the red zone in the first half of the season, they kind of stubbed their toe. They didn't have difference makers. But, man, when they started implementing that run game and we saw it really come to fruition against San Francisco – uh, on on Halloween night and then continue over the second half of the season. That's what I think allowed Kyler Murray to really kind of navigate the waters of a difficult rookie season in, in terms of personnel. I think that you you brought the heat down, the sacks went down dramatically, and you can credit Cliff Kingsbury for that. Um, this is a guy that I think showed you he's got some Kyle Shanahan in him that he can win with a lot of different running backs. He doesn't need as, as much as people want to clamor about pain, Kenyon Drake. I mean, I, I, I would feel confident if you want to bring back and uh, chase Edmonds and a, and a draft pick and a veteran of free agency. I mean, like Kyler Murray is your franchise receivers now in the NFL win in the NFL. People are going nuts over this playoff run. Derrick Henry. That's great. But uh, the Cardinals are going to to win or lose with Kyler Murray, and they can have a multitude of backs, and it doesn't matter who it is because Cliff Kingsbury has shown, because he has Kyler Murray, a special runner, a special talent, a quarterback, that they're going to produce on the ground, and they've never had that before. So I think the the one area where you're 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 going to have to wait and see on Cliff is what kind of changes would he make? Would he feel comfortable making defensively? Would he be able to intervene with Vance Joseph, who will return? And we hadn't mentioned that. Vance Joseph, if, if you've been living under a rock, is going to be back next season. 
how how involved will he be next year, knowing that full well the Cardinals finished with one of the worst defenses in the NFL? Can he assert himself defensively uh, as a head coach? Because you have to have your your hands in everything. But I, I would give him if I had to give him a letter grade, I would give him a B. I thought he was beyond excellent offensively and I think that defensively because of Vance struggles and and you know this is kind of a, a cop-out because of Cliff's inexperience not only with defense but putting together an experienced NFL defensive staff he had to have Kime help him I would give him probably a C which which evens out to a B and I thought special teams were were, were solid once again so I'm encouraged but yeah I mean you got a quarterback and a head coach on the same page you got a chance I would much rather have an offensive head coach in the, in today's NFL than a defensive head coach. And Cliff just has always checked a lot of boxes for me, and I'm excited to see where he goes moving forward. Blake, how would you grade him out for year one? Yeah, for year one, I think that there's enough early struggles in some of the, I guess in some cases you could probably call it naive, naivete where he came in thinking, hey, if I don't show my offense for the entire uh, preseason everything the Lions will be suddenly shocked and stunned will be able to kind of come out and get a victory that didn't happen at all I think the thing that Cliff did do really well ultimately was he sold himself to the team from the get-go of uh, being able to have an area uh, an arena of both professionalism where it was um, it wasn't like you know it's just a young starry-eyed guy coming in at least to the team I think that was one of the biggest keys but as you said the previous head coaching experience I think the what they talked about that was interesting was treated them like men um, was interesting because coming off of Steve Wilkes, who reportedly uh, would fine players sometimes if he like you know they weren't wearing matching socks or they had other issues with the suits that they were wearing, um, Cliff essentially kind of said, "Hey, like I'm trusting you guys to be responsible. We'll come to those across those bridges if we come to it." It was more of the, uh, I guess you could say, uh, this is how teams work. They usually go from a guy who's considered a player's coach to a disciplinarian. Um, Cliff would probably be called a player's coach by many people. He didn't really, you know, throw a guy like Patrick Peterson under the bus, at least even though there was opportunity to. Uh, Bruce Arians, I can't even imagine what he would have said about Peterson's effort in some of those different games. Uh, Bruce is also a little bit kind of a mix of both. What I think that the second thing that Cliff did ultimately was that he showed the humility aspect in a lot of different ways. Uh, essentially, like as we pointed out earlier in the year, uh, the team ultimately turned around because he was willing to say, hey, all right, whatever I had in plan wasn't working, went to the coaches, went to the players, and went and was able to morph and change his offense. He's always been a moldable guy who could adapt his offense to pretty much any quarterback, any type of system, even the receivers he was able to adapt them to. But to be able to take that humility of you just got your first NFL head coaching job and then to be able to say, hey guys, this isn't working. What can I do? There's so many people who will want to try to win and believe that they can win their way that they will never even try to do it anyway else. Wilkes is a good example of that. He wanted to you know, make sure that his scheme worked, the gaps were an integral, they were going to be a team that ran the ball on first and second down, threw the ball short on third down, and when it didn't work, he just refused ultimately to truly adjust. And I think the third thing that Cliff did overall is he showed a knack, and I guess you could say maybe innate understanding of being able to use situational football in a lot of different ways that kept the Cardinals in games they probably shouldn't have been in, and in some cases gave the Cardinals an edge against teams. I think of the Tampa Bay game where you look at the game plan that was 
designed essentially to attack Tampa Bay's corners, that fourth down call to Max Williams, some of those play calls that were, you just kind of look at this and say, oh, that was genius. They really did a great job overall of being able to um, show that Cliff is a guy who, as a game planner, as a play caller, he's right up there with probably some of the guys in the upper echelon of the league because a lot of those guys who are top play callers uh, that were hired from this last year had offensive experience. They kind of ended up having issues or flamed out. There were people who complained a lot about Matt LaFleur's play calling uh, early in the year. He kind of seemed to figure it out late. Zach Taylor never seemed to really show much of anything. Um, I think that the Cardinals overall, by finding someone who is able to design and understand offensive football and be able to understand a lot of the analytical aspect behind that, he understood, hey, if I can use the read option and use Kyler Murray bringing extra guys, having to cover... Um, and being able to spread out defenses, he was able to manufacture one of the best Cardinals rushing attacks we've seen since uh, at least I can think of the Beanie Wells 2011 year where um, he was healthy for the one year they went off because they weren't really trusting their quarterback to throw. Uh, I would give him probably, I'd say, a B- minus uh, overall, which you could probably argue compared to what it was last year to this year, you could say that it'd be an A. I think that it did show room for growth, room for improvement. Um, and we got to see that by Kingsbury. Hopefully we'll be talking about a higher grade next year. Let's shift over the attention to Murray himself because uh, this is the question I'll have for you, John. With the 3,500-plus yards, you have a total of 37, 22 yards, 20 touchdowns on the season overall with his passing. You also talk about the rushing attack. He was the first quarterback since Cam Newton, I believe, to have that number of passing yards and also being able to rush for... Um, five over 500 yards this year. He also added, I believe it was was it four touchdowns on the ground as well. What were your thoughts, at least overall, Murray? And do you believe there's an argument against him being the rookie of the year this year? Well, that's that's a tough question. I think that he is. I had somebody point this out to me, and they're correct. I was arguing he was the most valuable rookie. Period, and he is. There's no doubt uh, where this team was, the division they played in, the strength of schedule. But it's not most valuable rookie. It's re- offensive rookie of the year. So, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, who is the most impressive offensive rookie, then it gets a little muddled. I still think it's Kyler, but I think there are other variables involved. I think it helps that for A.J. Brown that he led a Tennessee passing revival toward the end of the season, and he went over 1,000 yards. It pains me to say he's probably going to win it by default. But, I mean, like, Murray was exceptional in all phases this year, the only, the only area where he didn't um, exceed my expectations was in passing touchdowns. But again, like to me, he was not so much in control of that this season. I mean, he had monster passing games and the passing yards were about what we thought, Blake. I think we did an over under podcast in the summer. And I think you and I pegged right around where he finished passing yards, rushing yards, rushing TDs. It was all there. Yep. Um, 3,500 yards took the over rushing yards. 500 took the over, took the over slightly. I think we, I think we said somewhere in the vicinity of like 24, 25 passing touchdowns. Yeah. We ended up. Yeah. We thought that, yeah, we would say we had picked him to go under for the total touchdowns that Baker Mayfield had of 27 for passing. Right. But to exceed that number because of the rushing touchdowns, he ends up with 24 total touchdowns on the season, missed it by probably about four touchdowns or so total. Yeah, numbers, so which, like, and you think about how many drop touchdowns did he have, how many touchdowns did he have negated by, again, poor receiver play. Um, and so 
how many how many red zone opportunities did they have in that first half of the season where they just butchered potential explosions for him offensively? I mean, really, the only passing game where he kind of went berserk with touchdowns and, and yards combined was the Tampa game, and I think a lot of us saw that saw that coming. Um, but again, I, I he he gets an A, he gets a solid A from me. Um, he was the most impressive passer. I think that I've seen since Carson Palmer's MVP like season in, in 2015. Um, and then before that you would have to go to Kurt Warner's final year in, in 2009. But I, I do think with his combination of rushing and passing, it's one of the greatest core. And this, again, this may seem like I'm overreacting um, with praise. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you've been a fan of this team for as long as we have, there's been, some horrendous quarterback play. So, you know, bear with us when I say that it's one of the greatest quarterback seasons they've ever had in Arizona. 64 completion percentage. He is going to, I think, get close to 70 next year, which is going to be insane, but I do think it's going to happen. Um, He is so accurate. I think where he surprised me, his accuracy with his deep ball is so exceptional. Mm -hmm. He's a, I think he's a top, 10 top five deep ball throw in the NFL right now. Um, and I knew he'd be good, but um, I, and I knew he had the arm strength, but his, his accuracy downfield was fantastic. Um, yeah. It was, and then it was the best the, we've seen. Like some, there was a, I think it was, Johnny I, know, I think it's better. I think it's ball, better yeah. than Palmer had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's right there with Warner. Um, I think, and then of course the, the lack of fumbles, I don't put the last two ga- last two fumbles in the, in the finale on him at all. Um, the fact that he was so careful with the football. Um, and I think that you're looking at next year, not to get into projections, but I, I think single digit interceptions. I think we're talking about 25 to 30 passing touchdowns. It's close to 70% completion in terms of throwing the football. I think we're talking 4,000 yards passing. I mean, it's it's going to be, he is going to be everyone's fantasy darling, everybody's projected breakout in the same realm of Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson. The only thing that worries me is those two seasons kind of came out of nowhere, whereas this is very well telegraphed, but I think rightfully so. I think he's shown with his competitive nature in the division that he is not afraid of the San Francisco's, the the Seattle's, the LA's. Um, and I love Carson Palmer, but the Cardinals got just beat to a pulp most games against the Seahawks and even sometimes the Rams. And really it was their defense that kind of had to keep them hanging in and outside of 2015 with Kyler Murray. It feels like if the defense can just be adequate in those games, like he's going to do enough to, to carry this team on his back. So he was phenomenal. I think he played well enough and I'll end it with this. I give him an A. I think he played well enough in my opinion, Blake to have an eight or a nine win season. Um, the defense was so poor this year. It cost him, Geez, um, multiple games. We're talking about maybe both San Francisco games, the Tampa game for sure. Um, The L.A. game, probably 50-50 at the end of the season. But uh, the Baltimore game, the defense did not play well. I thought Kyler played really well, and I thought his receivers let him down in that game. The Detroit game toward the end of it. I mean, just there were so many instances where just if they could have made one play, we're talking probably about a 500 or better team. But – you know, that's that they're going to be better for it because of the draft pick and, you know, the the draft capital, their their uh, roster turnover and they're going to upgrade at positions that hopefully they need to. But 
Um, Kyler on a, on a surface, I mean, he had a fantastic year. And if, if they keep him healthy and he wants to continue playing football, which by every account, he's moved on from baseball. Um, he's going to go down as, as one of the greatest Cardinal players ever, even if he doesn't ever win a Super Bowl. But the goal is to win a Super Bowl. And I think hopefully he gets us there, Blake. Yeah, you have a lot of hopes and expectations out of what you've seen. And what's great is that it doesn't feel like it's a uh, it doesn't feel like it's a case of the you know, people were looking at RG3, and that may be a common comparison. Um, when you look at the second year for RG3, what ended up happening with him after the injury, that seemed to set him back quite a ways. Um, you're hoping that he can take a step up in year two, similar to what we saw from Mahomes, at least, and Lamar Jackson. Uh, even the likes of Mitchell Trubisky was able to improve from year one to year two once they were out of being a rookie. Um, what's crazy about Kyler is he essentially had two records that you could look at that where I believe at least one of them I know was for sure set, which is the uh, most attempts without an interception by an NFL rookie. I believe he set that record. He broke that. I believe it was previously either held by, I wanted to say, almost like Tom, someone like Tom Brady or it was a huge rookie record i think it was there. andrew luck it might have been andrew luck it might have been i'll have to yeah i have to check i know luck had a was more it was like a recent it was a recent rookie um and he and he smashed it i think yeah, he broke yeah. it by, yeah, by 20 a, or 30 attempts yeah, or something quite a bit for that one that's gonna be great and then the second one i believe at least is i don't know if there's a rookie fumble record for number of snaps versus fumbles lost um, I do know that it would have been an incredible accomplishment to finish the season without losing a fumble for all 16 games. Um, there were two that ultimately were lost that were credited to him, but still, that is something that is remarkable to have, uh, especially when you're considering the type of NFL that we're playing in where a lot of the pass rushers are smarter, they go after the ball, uh, the players are always you know, choosing where gloves if they want. Those just showed that as long as you can take care of the ball and be able to manage the game, You'll do well. If you're able to make plays, you'll do one better than that. Uh, let's talk a bit about the defense because I think there's some interesting things here. We, for months, had speculated on if Vance Joseph was going to be retained, if he was going to be uh, let go by the team. There was also questions of his Vance having to make the most of the talent that he has versus the talent he's been given. And there was a shift that we got to see, and it kind of coincided. I noticed this once, uh, kind of went back after the season was done. When Terrell Suggs was released from the team and when Hassan Reddick was thrust kind of into his defensive end role that he'd been playing, um, there was a noticeable change on defense along that coincided with Patrick Peterson playing at a much higher level. Uh, Walter Mitchell, our own Revenge of the Birds writer, even talked about this and broke it down in detail, showing how taking the comments that Vance Joseph had were... He talked about the, you can read the article on our website at revengeofthebirds.com as well for more in-depth, but essentially, and this is something I noticed from week one too, a primary pass rushing role fell to Terrell Suggs because Suggs was not athletic enough in coverage to be able to line up on the tight end side. So he had to line up on what they called the will side, which is kind of your playmaking linebacker roles, what he called it. Um, and then the tight end side was where you had Jamla Jones. Once you were able to switch the two of them, you put Chandler on the primary pass rushing side, able to just go one-on-one often against the tackle. And you had Hassan Reddick, who, even though he hasn't been great in coverage uh, in his career with the Cardinals, is still at least athletic enough overall, was able to rush. That's when you saw the defense overall kind of take on a new mold. Uh, We've also been able to notice a lot later in the season where there was kind of a soft zone that Vance had been playing that seemed to disappear. And the Browns game, Peterson took Odell Beckham Jr. He shadowed him, followed him around. You saw Byron Murphy back playing in the slot, which is the spot that he had been 
kind of drafted to play in a lot of different ways where the Cardinals had been playing him outside. And you saw probably their best three defensive efforts of the season overall when they played a lot more of that man coverage. At the same time, you also saw Buda Baker, the pro bowler, come down out of being a deep safety some maybe 10 to 15 yards downfield and able to make plays in the box, able to rush the quarterback, able to make plays in coverage. And you saw Jalen Thompson kind of playing a lot more of that further back kind of safety role. But even then, he didn't play that 10 to 15 yards downfield. It was more of you would see kind of the two safeties. So they played a lot more of an aggressive style of defense late in the season. As a result, instead of giving up on average 30 points a game, they only gave that up to the Rams. The rest of the time, they held their teams below that and were able to make some plays. So the question I'll have, John, is, is this a case where Vance Joseph, throughout the whole season, is not playing the defense he probably should be playing, and then when it comes up and, hey, we got rid of Suggs, okay, we'll move these guys around now, we just, you know, we didn't want to bench the veteran, and was under a threat of potentially not coming back if the Cardinals were to lose nine games straight. Is that a sure. case where really this falls on Joseph just not adjusting until he had to, and that just kind of is just the, some of the, I guess you could say, lunacy? Or is this a case where Steve Kime and some of their decisions that they made perhaps held Vance Joseph back? We, I don't know if we're going to know for sure, John, but what are some of your thoughts, and is that room for optimism regarding Vance Joseph? No, Maybe some yeah. pessimism? Or what, what are your thoughts on that, John? Well, I, I to be fair, I thought he'd be back after the Seattle game the, the the great effort by the defense um really they're probably their best performance of the year um so i didn't go into the game against la uh thinking they'd make a change um you know i think you and i've been vocal that they uh probably should make a change but we we were both in the camp that you know they're gonna they're gonna keep them for another year um and i don't think it's primarily his fault i would probably give it like a 60 40 50 50 split leaning more toward personnel um, because of the misses, the countless misses in the front seven, the situation at cornerback. When you talk about Peterson's suspension, suspension, Robert Alford's um, injury, investing money in DJ Swearinger, investing money in Terrell Suggs, um, and so uh, having your your top defensive lineman, you know, kicked off the team for an arrest, cutting Robert Kimdichie. I mean, Vance Joseph didn't do any of that, and so. Uh, this is probably the most starved defense that we've seen in Arizona probably in, what, 10, 15 years. Even when they were bad, they've always had a couple really nice defenders, whether it be Dansby or Dockett or Calais or mm-hmm. DRC or Peterson in the early years. They've they've always kind of hung their hat. They've had like a th- three or four guys that made them respectable, and usually it's the offense that would bring them down. Well, it's the flip side now. We haven't really had a historically poor defense in some time, and we've had one really the, the last two seasons. So I know fans are frustrated, but again, we've done it many, many times. We've broken down this personnel, and it is by far, uh, I, I don't even want to say amongst the league worst. I think their defensive line that they fielded this year was the worst in the NFL based on talent, and that's no disrespect to those individuals. They, I mean, they get paid big boy money to play football, but – I mean, outside of Corey Peters, who's a, I think, a solid contributor, their their two five techniques were awful throughout the duration of the season, and that's on Steve Kime. They're outside linebackers, outside of Chandler Jones. They got better once they cut their top free agent signing. When free agency hmm. opened, they yeah. signed Terrell Suggs day one, two of them. and they Terrain Brock they, and Terrell Suggs are both yes, gone. Yes, Terrain Brock. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I well, here's what I would say: the Josh Rosen. Kyler Murray thing dominated the offseason so much so that the 
everything else kind of was swept under the rug. And they, they use that Suggs signing as just an egregious PR spin to keep you away from the, you know, the dumpster fire that was going on with Rosen. I, I firmly believe that. And so <laughs> they, they, they amended that decision. They moved Hassan Reddick outside, and he's fine. And I know people are going crazy, like, you've got to give him a chance. I mean, they kind of tried that his rookie season, and he looked okay. And I get it. He's a rookie, and that probably wasn't fair. But they used the 13th pick on him. Not to his fault. I mean, he didn't ask to be switched. But he was an outside rusher, converted, you know, defensive lineman to try to play inside linebacker. That was a disaster. Anybody who watched him throughout the duration of his short career in the NFL knew he could not play inside linebacker. So, yeah, he he got home a couple times in terms of applying some pressure. I don't think he had a sack at outside linebacker once they moved him full-time. But he did have a couple positive games. And listen, they're going to try to – flip his contract this off season. I know that. Um, but if not, they'll keep him on the roster. They won't, they don't have to pick up his fifth year option yet, but they'll, they'll make him a rotational guy. But I mean, that's the kind of garbage that Vance Joseph was dealing with. Yes. He, like you just mentioned, having Chandler Jones, not be your primary rusher is a huge mistake. You don't need to accommodate a 37 year old washed up outside linebacker. If you're worried about covering tight ends, then you need to get Suggs off the field and play, Cassius Marsh or, or another guy, uh, you know, Hassan Reddick or whomever. Chandler Jones should always have, you know, his hand in the ground, always should have, you know, primary target being the quarterback, getting after the quarterback. So they've had issues. They still have issues. But I think they are slowly transitioning toward respectability in the sense that they're hopefully going to move from 32nd, 31st, 30th overall in certain defensive categories to maybe the mid to high 20s. But again, they're going to need multiple defensive linemen in free agency. I mean, what does that say about the state of your team? They're going to need another inside backer. You could argue they need another outside backer. Secondary looks okay. You're counting on a lot of young players to step up, and we love Buda Baker, and Patrick Peterson looks like he'll be back, and they've got Jalen Thompson looks like a good contributor. So you've got some pieces now that, and here's what I'll say, consistency matters in the NFL. It's not good to be the Cleveland Browns when you're turning over every coach, every assistant, every administrator, year in and year out. That doesn't, you can see with that, how dysfunctional that franchise is. And San Francisco went through this, where you're consistently turning over coaches and nobody can develop a rapport and you can't get your scheme down. And you know, I, there are worse things in the world to, than retaining Vance Joseph and seeing if he can't turn it around and giving this defense some familiarity. And it's going to allow the learning curve to be that much faster. Listen, if it's a garbage curve to begin with, if, if the philosophy is, isn't good, um, we're going to know that. We're going to know midseason that you know, this isn't working with Vance. And we could see an in-season change at that point. But I do think that he was he has benefited, in my opinion, from a strong finish to the season. He's got that going for him. Mm-hmm. He's helped develop some younger players. Buda Baker took a step this season. Jalen Thompson looks good under his development. Um, you've got guys. Jordan Hicks is probably the most respected player on defense outside of Chandler Jones right now, and he was clamoring for for Vance Joseph to return. He was excited about him returning. You know, Chandler Jones had his most successful season as a pro, so. There are, there are some wins. They're small, but there are some wins. Let's see, and I think they're going to go heavy in de- on defense and free agency. Let's see what an influx of five to six new impact bodies does to this unit and see if they can really overcome their shortcomings this season. You know they're going to address 
the, the the issues at tight end. They're going to get an out an athletic inside linebacker, whether it's in the draft or in free agency. They're going to add a third safety, and they're going to add multiple defensive linemen to stay fresh, to have experience. I mean, they were playing just practice squad level guys. You're going to get a couple rookies back. You're going to get Zach Allen to see what he can do. So there is hope. There's not a ton, but there is hope. I think that you just have to figure out a way to play cl- complementary offense. You had a great tweet, Blake, uh, this evening watching Kansas City kind of rebound and score 51 points against Houston. Houston won their division, and they were egregious defensively. Kansas mm-hmm. City last year was the number one seed. They were egregious defensively. If you've got the right pieces on offense in today's NFL, you're putting up 30, 40 points a game. Your defense just cannot, you know, be a complete and utter sham like the Cardinals was this year, mm-hmm. and you're going to compete. Um, whereas if you have an elite defense and an egregious offense, you're not winning anything. Yeah, and that's you have just to have an elite state. defense and an average offense. You get the Buffalo Bills and right. what they were at this year, and you maybe can a see... little bit of Tennessee right now with what they've got going yeah, on. Well, but they've they've got really good quarterback game. play and a running back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I think that I think they're going to put put big money into what they did well last off season. And they got to find the Jordan Hicks of the defensive line. They've got to find another inside backer that can come in and play well on third down. Um, and I think that they will find hopefully their cornerstones in the draft, long-term players offensively to grow with Kyler Murray. But I mean, we could see this defense continue to be kind of bandaged stitched together at, in free agency. I think that's the one unit, Blake, when we talk about, where are they going to take advantage of Kyler Murray's rookie contract with this money that they're going to have at their disposal? Think of you're going to primarily see those additions be on defense, and you're going to see their offensive improvements come via the draft because they want to have, and that, that's not to say they couldn't sign a free agent receiver, but or you look at that. Or an offensive lineman, it could be. Right, or an offensive lineman, but you look at the availability usually what what becomes available in free agency for the most part it's defenders right it's defenders either up front or the secondary where the best value is and i think that you know elite offensive tackles don't hit the market right elite wide receivers for the most part don't hit the market you don't you won't want to pay big time running backs anymore the elite tight ends the 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 urts the kelsey's the kittles they never see free agency but and Dominican Sufsi's free agency, right? They these elite pass rushers become available for whatever reason. You look at the top free agents this offseason, and it's you know Clowney, and it's potentially Chris Jones and Byron Jones. And so, uh, all I'm saying is that yes, Vance Joseph, I would give him a D this season, but I would also almost kind of lean on the side of incomplete because the the I we we saw in the preseason they were so deprived of talent especially until they got Peterson back that I was impressed even when they would get a stop and they would hold a team under 30, but they went throughout the entire season without holding a team under 20. And that's a problem in and of itself. So they got a long way to go, but I, I, we're going to see significant changes for the better or worse, Blake. Yeah. The changes at least will be coming. Um, Let's do kind of a little wrap up with our, uh, Looking at some of the status of Steve Kime, obviously he was someone we never felt was in danger at all. There's questions about it. It will probably depend some on the Cardinals 2020. Um, the, necess- uh, the the need, I should say, to have a GM that paired with Cliff Kingsbury and gave Cliff two years after the Cardinals made the decision, hey, we've made a mistake with Steve Wilkes. We believe we're on the right track, though. 
and moved on to an offensive-minded head coach. That kind of almost guaranteed that Kime was going to get at least two years because if you let him go after year one, usually with a general manager, you don't let them go and then say, hey, we're going to have another guy completely change the direction of our team. Also, you're going to have to be sold on this is the right coach and the quarterback to lead us. Usually it's the GM who's making that decision. Uh, let's review a little bit of the free agents who were signed with Steve Kime before we talk about the rest of the draft picks. Um, I think you can kind of put them into two categories. You've got the good and the bad. There's maybe a few average signings we had, like you could talk about Kevin Peterson or Zach Kerr as an average signing. Um, you can maybe even talk about, you know, um, if you want to say Brett Hundley as a backup quarterback, maybe that's average for uh, the fact. I think you could count it as a win that he was able to come in and make some plays and be able to guarantee the Cardinals win. But you got the categories. There's good players that were signed this year, and in my opinion, I think the good does outweigh the bad, I'll be honest. I think that you talk about uh, the signing, at least, that started with Jordan Hicks, who kind of cemented the defense. I don't know why the Cardinals chose to, again, let a guy like Josh Bynes go. Maybe it was more of the 4-3 fit. But just by signing Hicks, um, Sweezy making the decision to bring back AQ Shipley, um, and then also the signing of guys like Max Williams and uh, you can talk about Charles Clay. I think maybe he wasn't as impressive as Williams was overall, but still made plays on the field. And then bringing in Dan Arnold. And then talk about Cassius Marsh. And then the overall play that you got of two guys in particular. Uh, you talk about Farrow Cooper, who was the return man and essentially Murray's main slot weapon, had some big plays. And Justin Murray, who was the right tackle for essentially the entirety of the season for the Cardinals. Those were all, I think you could say, solid wins. Like, they, I would argue they outweigh the bad but when you get into some of the signings that were kind of the failures those were kind of some of the biggest off-season signings that the Cardinals made you talk about Marcus Gilbert going down to an ACL tear he'd been looking good up until then was an injury risk Terrell Suggs didn't seem to have the same juice or efforts and was not making an impact Robert Alford missed the year coming off of an injury when you've got corners plus 30 years old that was a bit of a risk uh, Jordan Mills ended up playing for, I think, two games for the Cardinals, was actually activated off of their IR list to come back, but didn't really end up starting in the game. And then you talk about kind of the, uh, the I guess you could say, the dual issues of Kevin White and Michael Crabtree. And even with, you can mention maybe a Max Garcia, I don't know if you could say failed or not, but those two in particular, as far as with outside, were definitely struggles. What were your thoughts on the free agent signings, at least real quick for that, John, from what you saw? Do you think that it was a notch in Steve Kimes' belt that was good? Do you think that it was a negative that was there? Because I, I feel like it's kind of split in a few ways for the most part. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, he, he had some really nice players. You mentioned the majority of them. Um, and I think you have to include Kenyon Drake in, in that regard. I, I, they, great the Cardinals, call. Great call. The Cardinals aren't where they're at toward the end of the season without that pickup. And if they don't get anything other than a comp pick for him and they have to flip a fifth or a sixth, that's worth it. If you're talking about positive momentum for this year with Murray and Kingsbury. Um, I thought Kime had hit probably his best offseason, in my opinion, since 2016. Um, the 2017-2018 off-seasons were brutal. It's what set this franchise back, bringing back Carson Palmer in 2017, that humiliating 2017 draft when you have an opportunity to get Mahomes or Watson and you get jumped by two playoff teams um, and you double down on, on, on Carson and you let Bruce Arians mask what was a horrendous roster. And then the 2018 off-season will, will be tough to beat for Kime in terms of the worst. And he said a professional year of his career, 
He had the extreme DUI, the Bradford Glennon contracts, all the free agent contracts busted, the trade up for Rosen. I mean, it was a disaster. So he only had anywhere to go but up. And he had a lot of draft capital to work with. Um, I think Blake, in my opinion, free agency than draft, I would probably give him a C plus leaning on the side of a B minus just because of the Murray acquisition. He had the stones to say, you know what? I made a bad decision with, with Rosen or I need to upgrade, whatever, however you want to phrase it. Now, did he handle the Rosen situation? Well, I don't think so, but you know, I'm not privy to that information, what he was offered or wasn't offered when he made him available. Um, so I think he bungled that, but he aced the Murray situation. Um, he had some really quality free agent signings, and he had some poor ones. I think one of the things that probably isn't talked about enough is he, in my opinion, when you talk about having the first pick in every round of the draft for a rebuilding team like the Cardinals, I did not think his draft was impactful enough year one. Now, that is um, – Probably not super respectful to say in the sense that it generally takes two or three seasons to, to grade a draft and guys make huge jumps year two. And you generally know by then. Um, but outside of Murray, I mean, Byron Murphy torpedoed in the second half of the season. There's no way around it. They're going to try to scheme him into in as a primary slot corner. But do you take a slot corner 33rd overall um, when you initially said he was going to be an impact player for you? Maybe in today's NFL. But Zach Allen got hurt. He was an odd factor after the first month of the, of the season, first pick in the third round. Hakeem Butler didn't play at all. Um, Deontay Thompson, inactive. Keyshawn Johnson didn't play majority of the season outside of the first month or so. Really, his best pick outside of Murray, you could argue, was taken much, much later in the supplemental draft with Jalen Thompson. Yeah, his so, best two picks were the fifth rounder spent on Jalen Thompson, which was and the fifth rounder that was traded for Kenyon Drake. For Kenyon Drake. Where I will give Kime credit is when he is creative with his draft picks, generally it, it pays off. Trading picks for players has been a strength for Kime. We saw that with Palmer. We saw that with Chandler Jones. We saw that with Kenyon Drake. He knows how to, I don't know, utilize teams undervaluing their current players and, and flipping them for draft picks. Um, so I I am hopeful for, I mean, you come out of that draft with Murph, Murray as your franchise quarterback, and then if I think Byron Murphy's going to be good. The Cardinals really just need him to be good because then the rest of that draft, you know, the Isabel pick is what it is at this point. You know, Zach Allen, we hope, can just be a, a, a contributor. It's truly to grade the draft, but that just kind of stuck out to me as was like, oh, I'd like to see some of these guys emerge over the, the second half of the season. And I just didn't see that. But I do think his free agent signings and like the Michael Crabtree situation, that was rough. But you know what? He got to camp and they saw the receivers and they, they, he knew, they knew this isn't good enough. I mean, Kingsbury probably told Steve, like, we need some help here. And you saw that. That was their issue all season. You could probably make a critique that maybe they should have tried to pry away a Devontae Parker when Miami was selling anything and everything. Maybe they should have started calling other teams and, and looking for a receiver. And who knows? Maybe they did and the asking price was too high. So I give him a C plus. Um, but he nailed the most important thing, which was the Murray acquisition. And if he's not around to see that come to fruition, we will, we'll still be thankful for that, for that call by Steve. Yeah. I think you talk about, there's probably about 10 wins or so that you have there for the most part. And there's about six, I guess you could say maybe losses. We'll still see the jury's out for the most part on Vance, Alford, 
Um, and obviously with Swearinger, Brock Crabtree went and Suggs off of the team. It's difficult, but you at least are able to see the positives outweigh the negatives, and that's part of why I think Steve Kime is coming back and why I don't think it's the worst thing in the world that he's coming well, back. Well, and real quick, Blake, here, let, me, go. Mm-hmm. let me say this. I, what I like about Steve, regardless of how you feel about him, he's not afraid to turn over the roster. He tried to do that in with the number one waiver claim. Majority of those guys blew up in his face, but at least he tried to turn it over and I think that that will help them. Move. He's, he will not be stagnant with guys like Redick. I can tell you that. Yeah, I think that's one thing that will be key. It I was kind of almost a last chance for Redick. I'll be very curious to see um, just as much as well for like a the difference between what you might call of a uh, Steve Kime move at least that's done versus also maybe a move like I could totally see Steve agreeing with Michael Bidwell to bring a guy like Terrell Suggs in and that being a Bidwell type thing because that's something that he after banging for the team for years and years remembers the pain of passing on the local kid and seeing him go on to have a Hall of Fame type career. Uh, let's end it with this at least. Um, we'll be talking a lot more about the offseason looking forward at least in kind of part two of this episode. But let's talk about the Andy Isabella versus DK Metcalf uh, type of argument because a lot of Cardinals fans right now utterly Do we have to? Oh, I think it's at least worth mentioning a little bit because there was was one great point that was brought up on the uh, kind of our sister podcast show, the Rise Up Sea Red podcast show that I thought was uh, interesting enough. Um, Isabella was someone who, as we all know, I charted out the timeline in an article on Revenge of the Birds that went over... Uh, kind of how Andy had a rise for the most part and a lot of hype because of the speed, the deep ability, struggles at the Senior Bowl, bounces back with some great catches, gets drafted by the Cardinals. They have a coach that's went to UMass. It's on their staff. Cliff, you know, called him a little beast. They love the guy at the Senior Bowl. And then you end up kind of seeing outside of the 88-yard touchdown and then the catch and run, it looked like he was starting to carve out a role for himself. And then outside of a block that he made on the Larry Fitzgerald kind of running touchdown in the Seahawks game, we rarely got to see him after he got moved back outside. They didn't really seem to integrate him as much. Uh, The point that they made on the podcast was it's really hard to compare DK Metcalf and Andy Isabella because even though Mm -hmm. they're both listed as wide receivers – Not only is it the size, but essentially they're probably playing what the Cardinals would consider different positions. The reason why is the Cardinals have inside and outside receivers, whereas most teams would have, you know, your two outside receivers or maybe what you know as an X, Y, and Z. An X would be kind of, you think of, here's the way you think of it. X would be, this would be the 2008 Cardinals. you got Larry Fitzgerald as the guy who's playing that kind of wide receiver, I guess you want to say at least the um, wide receiver role. The X receiver is the guy who's physical, tough, has to get off press coverage, make you know consistent catches. And then the Z, for the most part, you would look at would be kind of your slot guy in between. So I think it's actually the Y is more of your slot guy, if I remember correctly, with the X. And then the Z is the guy who's got a little bit more space to run. That's how most teams would do it. Cliff, he runs so much four wide, he doesn't view it that way as far as guys go. He has outside cor- receivers to face those cornerbacks, and he has inside receivers. So he's got two slot guys and two outside guys, and the slot guys are supposed to work the field, be able to make space, make catches over the middle. The outside guys are going to be like your burners, your comeback routes, and also your deep threats. The Cardinals viewed Andy Isabella as a slot guy. That's what they've always called him. As I said, he's an inside guy. They eventually moved him back outside when they had injuries and needed to see, but they've always viewed him as an inside guy. DK Metcalf, on the other hand, That's a pure outside guy, deep threat, down the field. So the two players weren't really comparable. The thing that you might be thinking, though, John, is that when you say what's big, deep threat, outside running, 
that's essentially what the Cardinals, I think, drafted Hakeem Butler to be. And that was one of the mm. things that they brought up from the Rise Up Sea Red podcast. So you can say the Cardinals probably were thinking, hey, we're getting a similar player in Metcalf at a discount in Butler. That allows us to take the speed guy that we want to be a deep threat earlier in the round. And maybe that was, you could make an argument, hey, maybe that should have been switched. Maybe the Cardinals, you take a look away from the speed. Maybe if you switch those players, say, hey, if the Cardinals had instead drafted DK Metcalf as the outside guy, and then say you got a Hunter Renfro type of route runner who had some impact uh, from the slot. Maybe that would have been a better use of some of their picks. But I think it's important to note that the Cardinals in that sense, as we've said in this podcast already, they're still looking for receiver help. You hope that it's not going to be a total sunk cost for next year for Butler and then for Isabella. But I do think that is something that the Cardinals had put an emphasis on a player, and they didn't really, I think, compare those two directly. Maybe health came into it, but... I don't know. What are some of your thoughts, John? Do you think that it's a mistake that the Cardinals had? Is it still early? Do you think that it's just a spot for, hey, maybe the Cardinals were looking at a different position here and the speed that they thought was offered by Isabella with that shiftiness would paired better with Kyler? I think after one year, it's too soon to know. But I think at least from the end of year one, it's obvious right now, hey, if you'd taken DK Metcalf over Andy Isabella, we might not be talking about the Cardinals taking a wide receiver next year at number eight overall. Yeah, there wouldn't be as big of a sense of urgency. I mean, we got to call like it is. Isabella, outside of two games, really two plays, was a non-factor this year. He was an absolute non-factor, which is incredibly disappointing because he was a second-round pick at, you can now argue, is the biggest weakness on the team. Um, And he possesses something that the majority of Cardinal uh, receivers do not, and that's elite speed. Um, he had the long catch and run for a touchdown against San Francisco. And then the following week against Tampa, he had a nice catch and run um, that he almost took to the house. Outside of that, he was a non-factor. What gives me hope is that a lot of receivers come into this league and it's difficult to make a jump, especially like Andy, where you play college at UMass. Um, and so the, the frustrating part for the, I mean, if this was just another year of, receivers having a long I mean if they if this had been that year with you know Mike Evans and a Corey Davis a bunch of first round receivers who didn't do anything and Isabel's in that draft lumped in with everybody else and maybe there's one standout receiver that's one thing we'd probably be, it'd be probably easier to stomach but when you talk about a historically great not only draft class but second round for receivers and Isabella is not a part of that that's that's concerning and then you throw in the fact that Metcalf just kept falling and you allow a division rival to take him two picks after you pick Isabella. And what do we always talk about in, the, in recently in, in our podcast is like, man, can they just get back to basics and take players maybe that don't have the highest ceiling, but we feel like they have a presence, they can play, they are quality starters. And maybe you'd argue Metcalf was the ultimate boomer bust. And, and sure, you have some merit to that. But you're taking a, a, a 5'9 receiver out of UMass that is going to come in and, and what's his ceiling? I don't think anybody argued that his ceiling was anything higher than maybe you could get him to 1,000 yards, maybe. But he'd be valuable in jet sweeps and reverses and maybe become a return man. And yeah, he can, you know, has a, has a great ability to, to catch deep passes according to PFF at the college level. But I always thought, Second round is with this team, the way they were, you know, constructed a year ago and the the amount of needs that they had, that was difficult to to look at and say, okay, 
is that a value pick or is that a love affair because you, you really like the kid? Um, you, I, I think majority of people when the draft concluded thought that they got a better player in the fourth round and Hakeem Butler. And it turns out both of them were, were non-factors. So mm-hmm. Metcalf to me, I think he's still flawed. We saw him tonight uh, with a fatal drop on, on second or third down with Seattle with the game on the line. Um, so I yeah. think that, he has an elixir, and that's and that's Russell Wilson. And we hope that Kyler Murray can get to that point with his receivers, where he makes up for certain um, inconsistencies, certain flaws in their game, and really allows them to to elevate, probably better than they actually are. Um, but at the same time, you 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 hit it on the head, Blake. If they had DK Metcalf, and he was and he was coming in next year, and you're talking about six four two thirty only going to be 22 years old next year and you've got Christian Kirk you're two outside you're, you've got an outside receiver now that had 900 yards and seven touchdowns as a rookie that's better than Christian Kirk's ever had um, you probably feel pretty good about you know what we can really go BPA at eight or we can go offensive line and be fine and maybe take another receiver or maybe we target somebody like Robbie Anderson in free agency or something like that whereas now it feels like with the Cardinals you know how I feel about the Fitzgerald situation. You're really talking about they probably need to add two or three receivers into the rotation and certainly an alpha on the outside. And unfortunately, Metcalf really could have been that player for them. And hopefully they'll learn from that. They need to get back to drafting players, again, that have huge, huge upside. But at the same time, their floor is not inactive or their floor is not they can't get on the field. I need to see something from a lot of these players that just results in, oh, they're capable. Right now, we don't have that. Too many Cardinal players, too many high Cardinal players, and that needs to change. Yeah, I definitely agree. And with that, that'll be the end of part one that we have of this. We'll be focusing a lot on our free agency, at least that one in part two of our next episode. So make sure you stay tuned. Thanks again so much for listening.